Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Carol is the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and has responsibilities for marketing and public relations as well for WellMed Medical Management. Graduate of Trinity University and... Our Lady, not Our Lady, I always say that, University of the Incarnate Word. I know. I don't know why I, 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 I lock I, them together. It's the, maybe the Catholic school thing. Maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe it is. They're both maybe. in San Antonio. And uh, we're delighted to have you. you got a master's degree in gerontology. And for a while, and you're still on the board, you were chair of the National Council on Aging. Still on the board, still um, working with National Council on the Aging. We just got back from a national conference in New Orleans where we had the opportunity to present on economic security. And for those of you uh, listening who may have difficulty paying the bills or know someone who has difficulty paying the bills, uh, in addition to the session, there was a one of those open mic ask a question to the panel. Um, and I was talking about, you know, this fear that we've had in our field of aging for right. years that economic security well, people live beyond their money well they live beyond their money but that the baby boomers have no savings so you've got one third who are in debt you have another third who have no savings they're living paycheck to paycheck and then you have one third that have savings so two-thirds of 74 million people in this country cannot afford any emergency over 400 dollars. wow and so i the question i asked was We've been afraid we were going to fall off this financial cliff for 30 years. We've been talking about this and, and trying to prevent it. And did we? Because, you know, we're starting to see the people falling off the cliff. Um, that was before the Great Recession. It was before, um, you know, we had all of this financial you know, roller coaster that we've been on for the last decade. Well, I have a friend who uh, had hoped she would retire and lost in her entire 401k savings, which was a real nest egg, it's gone. Well, She's still working. And the people that are retired right now, for those of you who are caring for an older person, or, or maybe you're one of the lucky ones that has a pension, you know, so you got a retirement pension. The, a lot of the baby boomers on the tail end, people like me, um, you know, are, are not going to have that. The only money that we have is the Social Security and the money that we have put away through those 401k. There's no pension coming. No. And, and so, Social Security is not a retirement program. Right. So the National Council on the Aging, in addition to looking at health and caregiving, they're also looking at how do we improve the economic security of folks. And I know that, um, you know, a lot of listeners out there may be identifying with that concern. Well, you find more and more older people working well beyond where they thought they would be working. Right. And it's fine if you want to work, you enjoy working, you get something out of that in addition to the paycheck. It's another thing I can remember when my aunt, her husband lost all of his their savings because the company went bankrupt and their retirement plan was the company. Wow. Was all invested in stock in the same company. In the company. In the company. So we know we know that's happened you know, in several organizations. And if you're 76 years old and you suddenly find out that you have to go get a job and you don't want to go get a job, it just, you know, 
Even Walmart was discontinuing greeters. Well, I know the Walmart's discontinuing greeters. So we can be depressed about all of that. that. It's just, you know, I know that people think about it and maybe not enough of us are talking about it. Well, let's switch gears. We're very excited to be talking in just a couple of moments with Dr. Diana Kerwin, who is really an expert on clinical trials for drugs targeting a variety of Alzheimer and memory-related disorders. That'll be next on Caregiver SOS On Air. I was thinking the other day, about an apple a day keeps the doctor away. What about an egg a day or two or three? Are are eggs back? Are they okay now? Well, you know, eggs, talk about roller coasters. Eggs, I think I mentioned just a couple of weeks ago that there had been a recent report where eggs are back in the bad category. So eggs were bad, then it was like, no, eggs aren't bad. Eggs are good. So thank you, Jane Brody at the New York Times. We love Jane Brody. For picking up that study and kind of dissecting it uh, to what it really means because, you know, there was a study that said if you eat more than three eggs a week, um, you're going to get very high cholesterol and you're going to have heart disease and it goes up exponentially. If you don't eat any eggs, you know, you're not going to have premature death. So if you don't want to die prematurely of heart disease or stroke, don't eat eggs. And so, you know, I immediately was depressed um, because I love eggs. I do, too. But what she said is, is, all right, so do you have high cholesterol in the first place is number one. Because if you if high cholesterol runs in your family, which it does in mine, unfortunately, um, then controlling your egg intake is probably important. The other thing is, how do you respond to cholesterol in your diet? So. The, the cholesterol that you get, you have normally, and your, the impact of your diet, there's hypercholesterol and hypo. So if you respond and you really just, man, you, that cholesterol goes right into the bloodstream, you shouldn't be eating eggs. But if, if cholesterol doesn't really impact you, you don't have high cholesterol, you don't have that, you know, you really don't have as much to worry about. So how do you know? So this is, and I am so glad it's Thank like you. you read the article. Thank you. So if you want to know about hyporesponders and hyperresponders to dietary cholesterol, what they suggest is you, you, okay, so cut the eggs out of your diet, right? Get a blood test for your cholesterol, which is not, you know, anybody, we do that for free at our senior centers. Um, and so do the cholesterol, then go eat some eggs and wait a few weeks with your regular egg diet the way you normally eat eggs and go back and check it again. Did it go up? In which case you may be a hyper responder to cholesterol um, and you should cut those out. So there is a test that can measure cholesterol. And I guess I'm going to go have something else to eat. That would be a fasting <laughs> test. Well, it would be. A, it's, it is a fasting test. A fast. But, you know, the other thing that she points out is eggs, you know, they're an excellent source of protein. Um, right. Low calorie, 72 calories high in nutrients. They've got almost no carbs. And so, you know, phosphorus, potassium, vitamin A, D, B vitamins, um, they fight against age-related macular degeneration, which also runs in my family. So I guess I need to be somewhere in the middle, eat a few eggs, not too many. um, And you just need to know, do you have a high cholesterol or not, is the main thing. And then decide about the eggs. Sounds like good advice. What other genetically linked problems does your you, family face? Would, yeah, what would you, would you like me to, I could do 23 and me, 23 things that run in my family wow. right here on the air. Wouldn't that be fabulous? And as you talk about uh, the question of eggs, I know a lot of folks who are in the agriculture business have discontinued using antibiotics as a regular treatment for their animals. Uh, are we with antibiotics given to humans 
creating superbugs. Well, the one of the scariest articles I've read in a long time was in the New York Times about this new fungus that is antibiotic right. resistant. And so the the article that um, was recently in your The Ohio State Insight magazine, The Ohio State, uh, was talking about we really have to be responsible consumers of antibiotics as well. So the purpose of talking about it on Caregiver SOS on air is to say, you know, when we get a cold, a regular cold or a regular flu, those are viruses. They are not, they do not respond to antibiotics. And so when we are prescribed antibiotics just in case, or when we want antibiotics just in case, we are contributing to the growth of fungus, of viruses, of bacteria, all these things that are resistant to antibiotics. And it, trust me, we think humans are on the top of the food chain. No, no, we're on the bottom of the food chain. The single cell organisms think black plague and killing three quarters of the population of the world at the time. Right. Um, right. That was that was drug resistant. You know, they didn't have a drug. That was just the bacteria going crazy doing what they do. So, you know, I thought that was really good advice in terms of us being conscious because I know I have on occasion uh, in the past had a, you know, maybe one of the urgent clinic docs say, well, let me give you an antibiotic just in case. And I will say, is this a bacterial infection? And he says, no. And I say, then I don't want one because, you know, maybe I'll still have some immunity, but, you know, if it's the, if it's the bacteria that are mutating, then we're all in trouble. I can give you a good reason not to take an antibiotic if you really don't need one, and that is C. diff, uh, which is just this awful intestinal bug oh. that is turned you, loose. You kill, you kill when, off all those good when the little... the kills the good bugs. Good kills the good bugs. And you're, you're looking gut. at a guy who had it. Ugh. You do not want it. And, and it takes a long time to get oh. over that. And they have to bring in some kind of atomic antibiotic to get rid of it, some incredible carried in a vault somewhere at CDC in Atlanta, to, to get rid of it. It's unbelievable. Well, I know I had to take antibiotics when I lived in France years ago, and they automatically gave you something for your gut. Like a probiotic. A probiotic in those days just to keep that from happening. Well, they were smart. So it was always two things. And, and, you know, I never had that happen in the United States. I had forgotten right. that. Yeah, you um, need the probiotic. Yeah, it was a, pro, it was a probiotic, right. and they just prescribed that as well right there at the same yeah, time. The French no more. The French, you know, they do know these things. Exactly. Except where the electricity so, in Notre so, Dame So is. the fact is superbugs are out there, and they could be growing if we continue to kill off the good bugs. That's right. So it's up to all of us, whether we're a farmer, a caregiver, a consumer, um, to do our part uh, and encourage others to not use... Uh, antibiotics like their candy. Well, times have changed, too, as we become more knowledgeable. In the old days, which is not that long ago, uh, especially if you had kids, you go to the doc and they're not feeling well, we'll give them amoxicillin. Just automatic. Right, which I'm horribly allergic to. Auto- oh, you are? Oh, wow. A horribly allergic, yes. I'm very ill. Amoxicillin just knocks me. I'm, th- I'm like, I have like 23 minutes before it knocks me on the ground. Wow. Well, I'm glad to know that because occasionally we travel together and if you Someone tries I to would, feed you <laughs> amoxicillin. <laughs> Please stop we'll them. We'll prevent it. Please yeah. stop them. Wow. Yeah, it's horrible. That would, well, my wife is allergic to penicillin also. Yeah, and, and all the derivatives. You know, it's yeah. bad. Yeah, yeah. And they're 8 million. What else you got? Well, uh, you know, what else I have is talking, you know, we talk a lot about stress and caregiving. 
Um, yes. And so there was a new report in the New York Times that was talking about stress increasing the risk of heart disease for that people was a surprise under 50. for younger people. Right. How often how many people are out there are under 50? We don't we don't always address what's going to get you. No, we don't. We don't. Stress, Not on this show. Stress <laughs> is going to do that. Um, so, I don't know, this was a Swedish study yeah, what do you that mean? was looking at people that already had some sort of a stress disorder. So, if you're someone who is is um, unusually stressed out with re- with real stress and anxiety disorders, um, then it, it, for under 50, that actually increases your risk of heart disease exponentially, um, like 29% to 37% uh, over other people. Wow. Speaking of diseases, we're going to talk with Dr. Diana Kerwin in just a couple of moments. She is doing a lot of research on dementia and dementia-related illnesses. So, uh, that should be fascinating. Well, she, she's very well known in her field. Looking forward to speaking with her. Coming up next, right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. It is your chance now to run or walk for seniors across Bear County. It's the 4th of May. May the 4th be with you. The Lace It Up for Seniors 5K or 2.5K raises money for the WellMed Charitable Foundation to support seniors and senior programs. 30 bucks registration, 35 on race day. Kids 10 and under and seniors 16 and over are absolutely free. And there's a category for sleepwalkers. We'll tell you more when you go to registration at wellmedgives.org. We are so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernil, and we've been promising Dr. Diana Kerwin, and sure enough, she is with us now. Dr. Kerwin is Chief of Geriatrics at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas and Director of Texas Alzheimer's and Memory Disorders, a Texas Health Physicians Group. Grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and went to a Northwestern University where she was at the National Institute on Aging in Chicago as well. And we're delighted to welcome Dr. Kerwin to our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. Doctor, welcome. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. You've identified a specialty and really working predominantly on a disease that you don't hear much about. We've done, I was saying to Carol Zerniel, our co-host off the air, we've done literally hundreds and hundreds of programs and covered every disease imaginable, but had not touched on PSP. Oh, I'm progressive supranuclear palsy, yes. It's, um, thank you for asking, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I actually have, I specialize in um, aging-related brain changes, so neurodegeneration is the broad term. Um, when you think about neurodegeneration, the, the number one that usually comes to most people's minds is Alzheimer's dementia. Right. But there are other diseases that occur in aging, which is really after the age of 60 or 65, that also can result in a decline in both movement and brain function. And one of those is something called progressive supranuclear palsy, or PSP, which is actually a fairly rare form of dementia. But um, when I got involved in some research in this area in 2014, it was for a new medication for PSP, but it is now also being developed as a potential treatment for Alzheimer's disease because there is some similarities 
between the two diseases as far as what actually occurs in the brain that causes the decline. And so it sort of branched off from my initial involvement in Alzheimer's research, and now that's sort of cascaded over into PSP, and PSP research is now sort of going back and has a lot of overlap with Alzheimer's research as well. So usually with dementia and um, Parkinson's, the dementia is late, occurs later in the progression of the disease. Um, with the with the PSP, with the progressive supranuclear palsy, if people think it's Parkinson's, does somebody present mm-hmm. with the you know with tremors and dementia from the onset? That's a great question, and, and actually PSP is um, it, it it doesn't present itself very clearly in the beginning. So most patients that I've taken care of or that have been in our studies find that they go sometimes two or three years to different doctors with symptoms of movement problems. Sometimes it's falls or they start having speech problems with slurred speech or, and they, they sometimes they've been diagnosed as maybe they had a small stroke or maybe they have early Parkinson's disease, but it never quite fits either of those diagnoses. And then as time goes on, um, a lot of times the, the, the physicians will finally figure out that it's PSP. They'll either do a brain scan or they'll notice that the symptoms start to fit more PSP than anything else. And so that's how the diagnosis comes about. Um, PSP does have kind of, it has some overlap with Parkinson's and it has some overlap with other dementias because it does have movement problems. So like I said, they oftentimes will have falls or difficulty with movement. Sometimes they'll have speech problems or swallowing issues. And then the other thing that is very unique to PSP but almost really makes the diagnosis is they'll start to have trouble with their vision. They'll either get blurred vision or they'll get have trouble moving their eyes up and down or they'll have a lot of light sensitivity. Um, and so a lot of times those those symptoms, when you see them in isolation, it's really hard for a doctor to make the diagnosis. But once they start to see the, com- the sort of the, the combination of the symptoms, they start to realize that it's not a typical Parkinson's or a typical other type of dementia. That it's most likely PSP. So, do um, do physicians, either neurologists or geriatricians, um, is this common enough where you know people trained in those kinds of specialties would recognize it? It's tough to recognize. It does tend to be easier for um, a neurologist that's trained in an area called movement disorders. Um, they oftentimes see more patients with progress with PSP, so they identify it sometimes a little bit easier, sometimes sooner. Um, but I, I have seen some very good community neurologists and geriatricians that um, if they've ever taken care of a patient with PSP because it is so unique in how it presents, oftentimes they get better at identifying it in the next patient that comes along. Um, but for the most part, in general, like, you know, general primary care, they oftentimes don't see enough of those patients that they would have a very easy time diagnosing it. So oftentimes they, get, they do get referred off to a specialist. And the other thing, apparently, uh, it kills these patients a lot quicker than Parkinson's might. It does. With Parkinson's, the typical uh, time frame from diagnosis until late stages and then eventually death can be more along 10 years or so. Um, With PSP, it does tend to be much shorter. It's usually sometimes six to eight years. Um, And a lot of times they'll... um, it's more of the movement piece that really causes the issue. It's it's that they have more falls, and so sometimes they'll have an injury from a fall. Um, I've seen patients have 
head injuries or they'll get fractures from just from the falling issue, um, or they may have the swallowing problem that leads to, to pneumonias. Um, so the, the time course is a few years shorter than Parkinson's. Let's talk a little bit about uh, medication you mentioned, and we'll do that right after I remind folks who may have just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we're talking on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline with Dr. Diana Kerwin, Chief of Geriatrics at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas, and we've been talking about her work and looking at a variety of dementias, Uh, talked a little bit about PSP and Parkinson's. What about the medication you mentioned that seemed to have some hope, not only for treating PSP, but Alzheimer's, which would be wonderful? And that is a really exciting area. So um, this has been a new area of development in Alzheimer's as well. There's There's a particular protein that is that that we all have in our neurons. It's called tau, T-A-U protein. Um, it's in everyone's neurons, and it has a normal function in a normal working neuron in the brain. What happens in PSP and in Alzheimer's disease as well is the tau protein takes on an abnormal formation, and it starts to tangle up and no longer function. So basically, so you, if you took a nice piece of string and it was nice and taut and it was functioning in a certain way and it started to tangle up and get knots and no longer was working, that's kind of what happens to these proteins. Um, and it, it definitely, it's one of the primary reasons why a patient with PSP starts to have decline in certain areas of their brain is that the tau protein in some of the movement neurons and some of the neurons that control eye movements and swallowing start to have the abnormal tau protein and that causes the neurons to decline and to die. And so that's why their symptoms present from those areas of the brain. What we know about in Alzheimer's disease is that in Alzheimer's, there is also this abnormal tau protein development that leads to brain cell death or neuron death in the memory areas. Um, Alzheimer's also has a lot of other things that happen in the brain. There's another protein called amyloid protein in, in Alzheimer's. But the common thing between PSP and Alzheimer's is this tau protein abnormality. So there was a development of a medication which is aimed at removing abnormal tau protein. It's called a tau monoclonal antibody, and it's being studied in PSP. It's in what's called a phase two study. So um, human medications go through phase one, two, and three before they go for um, to the FDA for approval. So it's in the middle stage of the phase two for PSP, but it's also in a phase two study for Alzheimer's disease. Because the thought is, is that potentially if it can remove the t- abnormal tau protein in PSP, if it could remove the abnormal tau protein in Alzheimer's, it's a potential it could be a treatment for both, either so the idea, treatment yeah, or something contributing. Ideas, tangles or tangles? Tangles are tangles. Yeah, they are, there are different tau types. There's something called 3R tau and 4R tau. But now we're getting into really the nitty-gritty of the neuroscience. But there is, an, there is some thought that abnormal tau is abnormal. And if you can remove the abnormal tau and leave the normal tau in the cell, that you could maybe stop the progression of the disease from worsening. Um, and so that's why it is being looked at in both Alzheimer's and PSP. Well, Look, I, it's I, very exciting. It's very exciting. I am I'm curious. I had the opportunity to go to the NIH, the Alzheimer's Research Summit they had a few weeks ago. And what I learned there was that not all of these um, neurodegenerative diseases, you know, show up the same way when on the on the new brain scans. Um, 
in that I can't remember. So Alzheimer's, we now know what a brain with Alzheimer's looks like. I believe it's on a mm-hmm. PET scan, the colored brain scan. Yeah. But that some of the other ones, I believe it's FTD, which is also, I can't remember if it's FTD or Lewy bodies, doesn't show up on a PET scan. You have to do the old-fashioned MRI because of, you know, it, it just, this, they, I can't remember if it was the tower or the plaques. It doesn't show up. So I'm wondering, is there, if we were to map the brain like that, would we be able to recognize a brain that had um, this progressive supranuclear palsy? That Yes, and I'm glad you went to that conference. That's a great conference. Um, this is, so that is, you're, you're exactly right. So the PET scans, which is a new way that we can look at the brain for abnormal proteins. So the PET scans, you can actually give someone a medication in their bloodstream, and it will show up either abnormal amyloid plaque or amyloid protein in the brain, which is predominantly found in Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's also has abnormal tau protein. Um, and then PSP has abnormal tau but does not have any amyloid. So you're right. So what will happen is on a scan, if you do an amyloid scan, PET scan, on a patient with PSP, they'll have almost no amyloid. But they will have tau pro- abnormal tau protein show up on their PET scan. An Alzheimer's patient has a mixture of both. Um, and the difference in the tau between the Alzheimer's and PSP is actually where it ends up being located. Um, in, all, in Alzheimer's, the abnormal tau shows up in areas of the brain that have more of a memory function. So that's why the patients with Alzheimer's have, you know, losses of short-term memory. Whereas a patient with PSP tends to have a very good memory. It's other parts of the brain, like sometimes their judgment, decision-making, more of the frontal part of the brain that's not memory but has other aspects of your brain function, and that's where the tau protein shows up. So that's why it is called a frontal temporal dementia because the area of the brain affected is more in the frontal lobe, and Alzheimer's is more of a temporal parietal lobe. So that's why PSP is, it does fall under the umbrella of a frontal temporal lobe dementia or degeneration, and Alzheimer's falls into a, tip, a different type of dementia. We're going to come right back to this as we talk with Dr. Diana Kerwin. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. We're pleased you're with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. We're talking with Dr. Diana Kerwin. She's up in Dallas, where she works in a field that many of us who are in advanced years are hoping she finds the cure and the answer to all these different dementias. Carol Zernio, you've got a question. Well, um, Dr. Kerwin, you know, for me, I know we're kind of down into the science, talking about what do the brains and the brain scans look like. Um, but, you know, at, in the last few years, I haven't gone to several conferences related to dementias. I hear the frustration of the caregivers and the people with the disease when they can't get a diagnosis, when people don't know where to look to get the right type of disorder. Way back when I was in graduate school, we used to say it didn't matter what dementia you had. It was either reversible or it wasn't. And if it wasn't, you know, you just kind of had to move on and wait till somebody died to figure out what it was um so this this the the idea of of needing to know what type Mm -hmm. of uh, dementia you have and and what possible treatments there are is just so important it really is and it it is a an area of frustration when you meet patients and families that sometimes have gone two or three years knowing that something's wrong but not getting a good definitive diagnosis 
Um, the, the reason why an accurate diagnosis and early diagnosis is important is there's a, a few different reasons. One is eventually when we do have treatments that are disease modifying, you know, either something that's really going to stop or treat Alzheimer's or PSP, that's where it, these treatments are going to be probably somewhat much, much more specific than the treatments we have currently. Right now, most dementias are treated with about the same medications, and the, those medications are fine, but the treatment developments now are getting more specific at the underlying pathology in the brain. So having the correct diagnosis is going to be even more important. But even until, even until the day that we have those treatments available, having an accurate diagnosis is so important from an education and information and quality of life standpoint for patients and families. It's very difficult if they've been told you have Parkinson's or you have something, but they really have PSP. So what happens is they go to the doctor and they're told, okay, you have some type of Parkinson's, I'm not sure. And then they go and they look online and everyone does, you know, Google doctor and they look it up and they say, well, but wait, this doesn't look like how, what they describe as Parkinson's. This is different. We also have these things going on. And it's very difficult then to deal with a disease when you're not getting good information about what symptoms may come up. Um, so sometimes the most important um, treatments that we give in the office is just information about the disease so that the family and the patient knows what to expect. So then when it does occur, if it does, they know, oh, we talked about that. Yes, that does happen with PSP. That's part of the disease. It's not something new. It's, it's part of it. Or even how to prevent it from happening. Like with PSP, walking difficulty in falls can be a big part of their risk for injury and, and quality of life. So even just having them get to a physical therapist, getting the right kind of walker can actually improve quality of life, even though it's not curing the disease. It's very important, I think, for families to have a very accurate diagnosis so that when they, they can go seek out the information they need in the community to help get help manage the disease the best way possible. Um, and then, like I said, in the future, it's going to be even more important that the diagnosis be accurate because the treatments are going to be much more specific. We aren't going to be able to give the same medication to everybody with any form of dementia. It's going to be we really have to know what they have. Now, the imaging that you talked about is going to help doctors with more, um, with more uh, certainty and specificity about what the disease is exactly. And so that's going to go a long way in the future. But I still think for families, you know, getting to resources in the community like shows like this or the Alzheimer's Association, uh, PSP has a, has a support group called Cure PSP that has a great website with information about the diseases under PSP. There's an FTD website. So even going there and reading through that, getting the information that gives them that aha moment of, oh, this is what I think mom or dad has, can really help them then find the right specialist and find the right resources. In fact, uh, we've done some shows on FTD, which is really a very depressing disease. Not that, you know, they're all depressing. But, but in that case, if you are misdiagnosed and given medication that is designed for Alzheimer's, it can be harmful. It can be that it doesn't, yeah, years ago we did a study on a drug called memantine, which is used very commonly in all dementias, and we did a study on patients with frontal temporal lobe dementia and found that it really didn't do them any good. So it wasn't that it harmed them, but, you know, here they were spending money on a medication that really had no benefit no to effect. them whatsoever. Right. Yeah, so it, it can be that, and, and using your finances on something that's not going to help you can be detrimental because they really need those money to help them in other ways if they need, you know, for other treatments well, that would how, be more effective. How close are we, you know, you're in the research field, 
into having some new drugs just to replace the ones that we have. You know, the the Alzheimer's drugs that are still being prescribed today have been around for a long time. They're, they don't work very well or for very long, if they work at all. Um, you know, are, are we looking at possibly in the next few years having something else to offer? So there, definitely the medications that are currently prescribed are what we call symptomatic therapies. So they have their place. Still, um, if you have symptoms of memory loss and different things, they, they can have benefits. So they'll always likely be around, even when we get to disease-modifying therapies. Um, the disease-modifying therapies, meaning something that would come out that really treats the underlying cause of why that person's having either Alzheimer's-related symptoms or PSP-related symptoms, um, are within a few years. It's real, sometimes it's really hard to say the time frame because there's so many what-ifs that we have to get through. Um, we have to uh, collect all of the data um, in a clinical trial where we have patients that are getting the drug and getting placebo so we can determine do they really get better than if we were to give them nothing. And then also is it safe and well tolerated. So all of that information is being collected right now in these phase two studies, and that the companies then will take that to the Food and Drug Administration for review, and the, the FDA has the final say as far as whether or not it would be approved for use um, in clinical practice where a doctor would just be able to prescribe it from the office. We're within a few years, but it's still going to likely, you know, we still just have to go through the due diligence of doing the science. Um, we're very grateful to all of the families and patients that go into clinical trials because they're the ones that really help us figure out, is this going to work or not? Um, and it's, it's such a wonderful um, collaboration with patients that they can help us further the science by being in clinical trials. Um, but there is also a chance when they're in a study that that drug may not end up working. So sometimes they are in a study for a couple of years, and that particular drug is not one that's going to work, but there may be the next one that does work. So is it difficult to get people into clinical trials, or do people, because these diseases are so definitively, you know, devastating, devastating yeah. you know, do people run to sign up? Well, a little, yeah, a little bit of both. I, my, I've really focused on clinical research the last five years. I believe that anybody who wants to be part of a clinical trial should be able to do it and have it done in a very safe manner. So that's my job. I enjoy having patients in clinical trials where I can really monitor them and make sure that they're safely able to participate. Um, in PSP in particular, because there hasn't been any good treatments, um, when we have when we first did our PSP study, patients came from all over. Um, they were very eager to be in the study and to get something that, even if it didn't help them, helped further the science. And so, again, that's why I said these, these patients are, and families are so remarkable. Um, we don't have a lot of difficulty finding patients to be in studies. Sometimes it's just a matter of educating people about what does it really mean to be in research. Some people think about, you know, a mouse in a maze when they think about research. That's not obviously what happens in human studies. In human studies, it's more about safety of giving the medication and what are the side effects and how do they feel and does it make them better or are they the same? And so we're gathering a lot of data when they're in the study. Um, and so there, it is a little bit cumbersome. There's a lot of visits. It's not like just going to your doctor every once in a while. A lot of times when you're in a study, they're coming into our office every few weeks. Um, so it, it, you get, they get a lot of attention, but it is a big commitment on their part. I do find, though, that it's fairly easy to find people who want to be in studies because like you said, these are these are devastating diseases, and the number one reason I hear from patients and, and why they want to be in a study is they realize it may not help them, 
but they say, I really want to help the next person, either my son, my daughter, my grandchild, and or my neighbor. Somebody will benefit from this eventually. Um, they're not necessarily looking at it to benefit themselves. What was the motivation for you, Dr. Kerwin, to get into this field of work? Um, I was always, I was studying at Northwestern. I was internal medicine, and I realized I really uh, enjoyed the research aspects that was going on in Alzheimer's disease research at the time. We fortunately had a really uh, amazing Alzheimer's disease center at Northwestern that's still in operation. Dr. Meshulam is the director there. And I said, I really want to do research with patients with Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative disorders. It fit in well with geriatrics because I was already studying the effects of aging on the brain. And so I just sort of then went into clinical trial um, management and development um, when I was at Northwestern. And then when I moved to Dallas in 2013, I sort of continued that same work. And in the last year now, I focus only on clinical trials and just taking care of patients that want to be in, in clinical trials and trying to do what we can to contribute to the science um, so that these medications can be tested and, and move through the process um, as safely and as quickly as possible so that we do get something that we find does work. Now, are you working with the folks who are in the labs mixing up these new medications? Yes, you do a little bit of that. We do a little bit of work with basic scientists to say, you know, really First, you have to look at what, do, what is the disease underlying mechanisms of Alzheimer's. So we have to learn a lot about the different diseases. And then, we, then the scientists in the lab start to develop potential targets, that they're called, something that might work as a therapeutic. My job is usually to come in when they're ready to go from the lab into a, a clinical, a human study, and looking at the design of what would be the safest and best information to get from those early stages. Um, when you're developing clinical trials, how do you, um, you know, sometimes you can't do everything on a human being to, in order to see what will work. You have to balance really their safety and their, the burden of being in the study with what is really the, the information we need from them um, in order for them to safely participate. And so I'm usually involved in the design as well. Well, the groups that you work with in human clinical trials, they're fairly small. I mean, you, how many people like do you have usually? in one of your trials? So it depends on the phase of the study. So phase one uh, tends to have very few patients. Sometimes you only need about 16 patients total in a study for a phase one study, depending on the disease and depending on what information you're collecting. Uh, phase two and phase three is where we tend to need hundreds of patients. So in those cases, um, when it is hundreds of patients, my center alone, I, I would not be able to put 100 patients in for several reasons, mostly logistics of just being able to safely take care of those patients. So you tend to collaborate with sometimes up to 30 or 40 other centers where each center might enroll you know, 10 to 20 or 30 patients so that we can get to that collective number of maybe 400 patients. But we're all doing the study exactly the same way so that the information that comes out of my center is the same as the information from another center so that we know that we've got good quality data to determine is this medication really working for these patients, whether they're at my center or another center. So it is a lot of collaboration with other physicians, with other scientists, and with other centers um, that, are, again, are all working towards doing this in a high-quality manner so that we have consistency across uh, the study. Well, that's, you know, that that's kind of the adage, the two heads are better than one, you know, at the conference they talked about. That's really accelerated the field with all of this collaboration, not just in the United States, but globally around Alzheimer's and dementia research. 
It has. And one thing that um, groups are starting to move towards, a lot of the uh, nonprofit, like there's a group, the Tau Consortium, which is the Rainwater Foundation out of Fort Worth, started the some early PSP research. And their um, their main requirement at the beginning with any researcher that they funded was open collaboration. Keep your data open. Share it with all of our other researchers. And that, they found, was a really big way to facilitate the speed of the science to, to get to the next development. And you're seeing the NIH has also been moving towards that um, model as well and a lot of other groups. And they do find that having that sharing of data early on so you're not waiting until the scientist publishes the paper that you read about in a paper format, which is what used to happen 20 years ago, um, but having real-time data sharing at conferences so that you can take that information and say, oh, I was doing something similar in my lab, but I didn't find that. Now I get to go to the next step. And so what ends up happening is each bit of research builds on the next, and it gets us there faster. i got to stop you right there. I really appreciate your time. And if you don't mind, we'll get back to you yeah, in the we, next few months and we see where love, we're going. Yeah, we would love to hear some of the results when you get to the stage to be able to talk about what you're kind of seeing, if there's any trends. And I'm waiting to hear was, a great big Yahoo out of your lab. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd, be, I'd love to get to that day. So Thanks. As soon as possible. Take Thanks care. So Bye-bye. Dr. Diana Kerwin, we appreciate you coming on Caregiver SOS On Air. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. It is your chance now to run or walk for seniors across Bear County. It's the 4th of May. May the 4th be with you. The Lace It Up for Seniors 5K or 2.5K raises money for the WellMed Charitable Foundation to support seniors and senior programs. 30 bucks registration, 35 on race day. Kids 10 and under and seniors 16 over are absolutely free. And there's a category for sleepwalkers. We'll tell you more when you go to registration at wellmedgives.org. We appreciate you sticking with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. At the end of each and every one of our programs, we bring you Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and an expert not only on caregiving but on addictions as well. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here, and I'm Ron Aaron. And, Carol, you've got a pretty relevant topic that affects a lot of caregivers and families. Well, I was thinking about care transitions, and I know, um, Jamie, you've had some care transitions in your own family where somebody is, you know, they're at home, then they're at the hospital, then they're at rehab, then they're back home. And I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the pitfalls of moving uh, someone you're taking care of into different situations? Well, you know, Carol, I don't think our healthcare system yet has grasped that. I think that we're still struggling as as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid keeps, you know, talking about uh, admissions and readmissions issue. So I think we're trying to still get it right. But I was very fortunate in many ways because my father is married to a, uh, what I call a black belt caregiver, literally somebody who gave up their life basically to take care of him. And literally he's got, I think, 15, 20 more years as a result of that. So she never left his side. But there's so many issues around a care transition that can go wrong that if she wasn't there, I'm sure it would be a different story. Well, like what's, what's something that typically happens? When somebody leaves the hospital and you have that discharge planning process to go to rehab, what are some of the things that happen that families need to look out for? Well, in our family, it was first the issue of really coordinating the, the right 
place to follow up, the right rehab. And we had to look on the plan as to who was accepted by them. And we had to go out there basically and walk through, uh, literally, you know, my sister and myself. Uh, she never left his side. Um, so that's the first place is where actually does your loved one go? And what and would are you comfortable as a family? Right. And what would have what would have told you no, not this place? What would have triggered you? What do you, you look for? You know, that's an interesting thing. I think, uh, uh, you know, if you're really a family caregiver, I have a feeling it comes to you intuitively, that you feel it, that you know how your loved one kind of is and, and how they've been and, and what they'll really feel comfortable in. I think that's an intuitive issue. Now, if you're a professional, obviously you look for cleanliness and you look for people being happy, you look for social programming um, and whatnot. In my father's case, um, there was a cultural issue. He was a Holocaust survivor. So I looked for something that was the Jewish home for the aged, for instance, that was able to maybe make him some chicken soup while he was complaining that he was there. Well, and I think that's super important because, you know, there there is a fit. And when you're in a hospital, oftentimes the discharge planning feels, after you, it feels rushed, right? I mean, you don't get out fast, but oh, the whole discussion right. goes really quickly and there's a lot of pressure to pick a place. Um, and so making sure that you do choose a right place that's, you know, convenient for you to get to so you can come and go easily, that is clean, that does um, kind of meet your family. I know, you know, with my mother, we looked for smaller places for her because she didn't do well normally in a really crowded, busy environment. It was really important to try to kind of keep things at least if it was if it was a lot of people, it needed to be a little bit quieter. It's interesting. In our family, we're going through this right now. Uh, Gina's mom, my mother-in-law, just had surgery. Uh, she refuses to go into a rehab. At all. She doesn't want to do it. Not going to do it. I'm going home. Right. And there's nobody really father. there to mm-hmm. care for her. Which can be dangerous. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's when you really have to almost get an intervention together. Because to your point, Carol... Every doctor, every specialist, I should say, because it was handled by a hospitalist, every doctor had a different uh, rehab to go to. And it was telling my father about this one, about that one, and literally uh, they were totally confused. So uh, it, it's critical, though, to your point, Ron, that that's when the family gets together with the, the licensed specialist, uh, hopefully it's the physician, but if not, now a licensed clinical social worker, and, and really helps them to understand the levels of care and why they need more, you know, acuity and, and uh, more skilled health, and why they have acuity and, and why they need skilled health. But there's more things. I mean, you pick a place, you have to worry about the food uh, that they have, the preparing of the meals. Is there also kind of coordination between, you know, yourself, uh, the provider that you just left, the hospital, uh, and and the rehab? I mean, so... There's so many things. It's like changing a tire on a, on a fast-moving vehicle. Well, and one of the tricks that we learned with my great-aunt was we would call the facility that she was going to go to a couple of times to see if they answered the phone. Wow, that's a good idea. <laughs> because we had, there were a couple of facilities you could not get anyone on the phone or to return a call. Wow. If you just joined us, a great idea. If you just joined us, by the way, want to let you know you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel, and Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline from Florida. That's a good thing to do. The, the other thing, Dr. Jamie, you mentioned to go there, and Carol asked, what do you look for? And you said, well, you think caregivers intuitively know uh, how it feels. Uh, what about from the standpoint of quality of care? Are, are, are these places 
the way clinics are, are they <laughs> measured? Are they rated? Are, is there a star system? Yes, there is, Ron. There is. And, uh, and obviously, you can also go, believe it or not, to skilled facilities, assisted living facilities that are on Yelp, even. I mean, you really can get from a caregiver's viewpoint. Because as much as it should be something that we're going to project, that feeling for our loved one, uh, don't forget, our loved one's not going to be happy like, like your mother-in-law, Ron, in any place. So right. really, this is about caregiver management. This is about finding a place comfortable that you can actually uh, justify and also provide support for. Well, so, now, um, well, did you have any issues with medications? Like, did you know or did the facility know exactly what your father was supposed to be taking once he arrived there? You know, this is where obviously the black belt caregiver can be too much because she was really monitoring every pill brought things in. She couldn't do it. Obviously, there was policies and procedures. Um, she knew his, what time he takes one particular medication, what time he takes another. And, you, you know, it was basically, you could see them because my father and his, his wife are like out of central casting. And I told her, you know, you probably want to ease into the culture rather than superimpose yourself into the culture. So um, it's, it's really important uh, to get a feel for the place beforehand and, and really understand uh, how they get, when, when they get medication and get on board, if you will, with the skilled staff. Well, and I think you make a good point because you can become the caregiver, the family member that the facility doesn't like. And right. they're not supposed to retaliate, but it can make for a difficult rehab where the stay. the cook spits in the soup. Yeah, you don't want it can that. make for a different stay, you know, difficult stay if you get on the wrong side of everyone. It, it's a delicate balance because you can really project, you know, to them that they don't like me either. And that's, you know, what a, somebody who's too close, obviously, to the situation can do. So it's a dicey sort of uh, deal in terms of balancing those two. Well, did you find that, do you find that in rehab facilities, I know people come out of the hospital and they're exhausted. A, they were in the hospital. They never because something was Because something was going on. And then they, you know, they get to the rehab. So is, is getting a good night's sleep, is that usually an issue in, in rehab? Oh, my gosh. He must have been there, Carol, with me. Because my father, when he was transferred, he was so tired. You know, this is a 91-year-old man who goes to work every day, believe it or not. And he just looked like a whole different person. So, yes, he had to almost detox from the hospital stay, that tremendous, exhausting sort of time that he was there. And it took him at least two to three days, and they were torturing him, obviously, to get into rehab. So, again, there's a delicate balance. And when a caregiver goes and really surveys a place, they may want to connect with the staff to feel the comfort level of this interaction. It's an interesting balance. The hospital wants to get you out. They want to get you either home or into rehab, but they also don't want you coming back. They don't want a readmission. Yes, it's true. And it is like a, an absolute uh, nightmare. It's like, a, it's like exactly what Carol says. It's so frenetic and so acute. That's why I think you should plan as soon as you get in there, like hospitals do, that discharge planning begins upon admission. So caregivers should really prepare well beforehand before they get the news because the hospital is going to hustle them out as quickly as possible well and you know for those who uh, want you know really want some concrete tips on care transitions i recommend nextstepincare.org that's all blobbed together nextstepincare.org run by united hospital fund which is a, a nonprofit that helps hospitals develop policies uh, in New York State, and they have some wonderful tools of things you need to know when someone is transitioning from hospital to rehab to home. 
We'll try that. We are flat out of time, Dr. Jamie. Thank you very much. Carol Zerniel, thank you. For Take 10, I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. We appreciate you joining us. You can catch this show Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer.